So hopefully everyone had a fantastic Thanksgiving and is recovering uh, nicely. Uh, some, I know, celebrate harder than others. But uh, like I said, hopefully everyone, no matter how they celebrate, is everyone, everyone hopefully is doing very well today. I believe I've been joined by my co-host, Mr. Gentleman, J- Gentleman James Coburn. Uh, yes. Excellent. Excellent. And I, I trust that all is well, sir? Oh, yeah, everything's going well. I'm actually heading to uh, Disney World today. Oh. So it's going to be an interesting day, yeah, in Florida. Oh. Well, enjoy that. Um, I must report that I've never been to either Disneyland or Disney World. I have been to SeaWorld. I'm not really a giant resort community destination person. I usually like things that are a little further off the beaten path. But right. I'm not, but I'm not judgmental. It's just not my particular thing. Not my jam as the kids would Sure. Uh, what is my jam, however, is talking about NFL draft prospects. Uh, anytime, any place, anywhere, anyway. So, with that in mind, I would like to start digging in and trying to figure out who's worth discussion, uh, especially people throw around so and so is a surefire first round draft pick, right? That's something. Anyone who is part of clinical draft photo at Twitter hears you hear that well about a hundred different players each season, at least you know that somebody is a surefire first round draft pick. Of course, half those guys not half, probably twenty percent of those guys don't even declare, you know. So maybe twenty percent of those guys will end up playing college football again next year. But yeah, probably about eighty percent of the guys people talk about as surefire first round draft picks do declare. But based on the work you do, I want to start at least on trying to figure out sort of a top 50-ish kind of thing. When you're trying to figure out who should be a first-round draft pick, what does a first-round draft pick look like? Uh, You can't see the air quotes, but what does a first-round draft pick look like in terms of what data work and metrics tells you? What should they look like? Let's put it that way. What should a first-round draft pick look like, Jim? Well, uh, I mean, that differs every year. Um, the ba- the basic way that I look at it as is you look at one their production data to see becoming a multiple All Pro, multiple Pro Bowl type player, or even a long term starter for that matter. Uh, which which again production data typically gives you a good idea of the range of possibilities that they could hit. Uh, you first look at athletic data to give you an idea about. Uh, the potential outcomes with that as well. Um, age data, which I know is frowned upon to a certain extent, but that just deals with, age really just deals with upside overall. I mean, it's, it's not a big deal breaker, but it really is just that big determining factor if, if a guy is like a, you know, we talk about generational prospects all the time. Age is much better to look at to determine if a guy is a generational prospect versus just a very starter type. And the final aspect, of course, would be film work because I feel like the the prospects that become the most successful are the players where the data guys love the guy and the film guys love the guy. And I think whenever that happens, when that links up, I think that's when most people um, find the most success. 
you know, is when you have that happy medium um, on a guy. So, because a lot of times when the when the film guys, you know, deviate on a guy, they're not as successful. Just as when the data guys deviate on a guy that film guys don't like, there usually isn't as much success. Um, but I would say when it comes to first round prospects, it really just depends on the year, um, because there are certain years where there may not be that top ten prospect. There may not be a generational prospect, but is this a player that's, you know, the 32nd best player out of his class? And yeah, so, um, I don't know. I, I don't really look at first round as, well, this guy has this type of talent, because not every year is going to have that, you know. Not a, not, every year you're not going to have a bunch of first round prospects. You might have guys that are good but not great, but they might end up being first rounders just because you have to have 32 guys taken in the first round. So it just depends year to year. And I think Data does a very good job of um, filtering down the quantifiable upside, as I like to call it, like the tangible upside, I guess is the best way um, to put it. And then the film is kind of the intangible upside of a player. Okay. And I know your process has been a little different this year because of non-football, uh, off-the-field activities or whatever you want to call them. That, uh, yeah, good thing, I traveled obviously. the world, Bill. But yeah, <laughs> you did. You did a lot of stuff happened world. this year, yeah. Well, all of it good, uh, but obviously... You know, I mean, it doesn't affect your it doesn't affect your character grade in my in my book. All of it was good stuff, but uh, but yeah. nonetheless, it showed that you have interest off the field. Some people grade down for that, you know. If you <laughs> if you have outside <laughs> NFL prospect, you know, took two months off of football. To, why why are you taking two months off? Because I want to travel the world. People would be like, what? <laughs> what? Can you imagine if that actually happened? Like, even if it yeah. was during the season, even if it was, like, during the off-season, right? If instead of, you know, working on drills or lifting weights or watching tape or whatever it is, the kid said, hey, I'm not going to go to summer school. I'm not going to do this other stuff. I'm going to go to Nepal. <laughs> yeah. But some coaches are like that. Now, they don't like to talk about it, but there, there are some scouts at the senior bowl even that I heard, and they were talking about how, they didn't like a guy because they felt like they did too much charitable work. That he was <laughs> he was being too committed to donating his time, you know, when he could have been doing more film, you know, stuff. And I, I was like, really? Wow! Isn't you know, that what you bubble, want? Dude. They live in the bubble. I mean, we talked about this at least once before, where people don't understand the bubble is a different world. And so people think coaches are joking when they say, you know, I don't know who's running for president or I don't know. Some of them aren't joking. Some of them live so far in the bubble, they don't know what movies are out. They don't know. They don't know. They don't don't have time. (laughs) You know, when you talk about Fortnite or some video game or something, they they, they don't know Fortnite. They don't know. They don't play video games. They just watch film all day. They're trying to keep their job, you know. They're trying to make sure that they, you know, they have food on the table in the future. So, you know, they're devoted all their time um, to that kind of stuff. And a lot of times, even, the, you know, they're married. Yeah. But that's just, uh, what that's I just their mentality, you know. 
I, I frankly think there's, you know, no excuse for so I mean it's there are coaches yeah. who manage to be successful without having zero knowledge of the outside world. David Shaw is a yeah. guy that knows what's going on in the world, I'm willing to bet you. And he's had a good amount of success. Now, obviously, this year is not a great year for Stanford football, but I'm willing to bet he knows who's president. And I'm pretty certain he knows what, you know, what movies are good and things like that. Not that that's a big deal. I shouldn't, I shouldn't pick on that. But, but it's almost a mark of pride, as I'm sure you know, for guys to not know stuff to be unaware of anything that isn't directly related to preparing for going on to Cincinnati or preparing for facing Florida State or whatever it is, that you want to show that you're so dedicated that you just don't have anything else going on in your life or your mind. I, I forget how many children I have. I, I think it's two, but it might be three. I mean, that's almost like a mark of pride. Yep. Delightful. Okay. Well, luckily, you and I don't have to live that way. Uh, we, we, we immerse ourselves to the extent that we yeah. decide we want to, but we don't have to be in the bubble. No, we don't have to be in the bubble. And honestly, it's just well, the it's out of the bubble. We know the outside world beyond the bubble. Because once yeah. you see what's going on outside of the bubble, you get a better understanding of you know, other people's point of views on things, and, you know, what their perspective is, you know. On uh, on stuff, thinking outside the box. Yes, yes, right. Some of these people don't even know that there is a box, or that there's a way to be outside of it. But um, returning to the work, right? So returning to the work. Tell me about some of the things that you have learned thus far um, through either film, data work, or a combination of the two as you start looking at this draft class? Well, I think, I think for this draft class in particular, uh, I think the quarterback class is not going to be as good as people want it to be. Um, I, I think there are prospects in this class that I think are interesting. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in what a Kyler Murray or a Dwayne Haskins could potentially bring to the class, but... At the same time, I could easily see them going back to school. Um, maybe not Kyler Murray, but oh, you know, yeah, basketball. going going to go play professional baseball in, in this particular case. Yes, right. right. You know, there's there's definitely that aspect to him that kind of affects it. But I I just don't think this quarterback class is particularly as sound as ones in the past. I don't think it's as good as last year from from just a statistical standpoint. It's not as good as last year's class. Um, it's not as good as the Deshaun Watson class. So I just think this quarterback class is really is a big regression um, back to the mean, so to speak, when it comes to quarterback. Um, and I do think there are some there uh, there are some good quarterback prospects in this class that I think could become that second tier, third tier type quarterback in the NFL. You know, where there could be a, a spot starter. Um, or, you know, stuff like that, like a Chase Daniels type, if you will, um, or uh, I think as you put it, like a Matt Schaub-like guy. There are yeah. some guys in this class that are like that, but if you're looking for the cream of the crop quarterback, you know, a Pat Mahomes or, you know, or whatever, you're, not, you're just not going to find that guy in this class. No. So, yeah. isn't about to walk through the door of this draft class. Exactly, and I think this honestly might be the class where 
you know, we talk a lot about, well, you have to take the quarterback in the first round, you have to take him in the first round, and this might be the class where you might get more value out of taking the quarterback in day two or day three, just because I think a lot of the typical quarterback tangible, you know, BS that a lot of teams look at, you know, where they have to be six foot five and they have to be a certain, you know, background or whatever. I think this is the typical class where you might benefit from taking a guy who doesn't quite fit all the boxes and end up getting a really good player, you know, in day two or day three when it comes to the quarterback position. Right. Right. Or out of conference, so, you know, like a Brent Stockstill, you know, or, uh, you know, like basically yeah. a, a guy kind of like that, you know, it's kind of thinking he's outside of the norm, you know, of, of quarterbacks that you look for. If if high-end long-term backup is as good as it gets in this class anyway, why not wait until the third round? Exactly. Exactly. You know, if you're going to take a guy in the first, and there's a lot of quarterback needy teams. I mean, you got the Giants, you got, um, you know, you got a, and now of course it depends on what they do because like Joe Flacco obviously is going to try to find a new place to hang out. Uh, you know, there's a couple quarterbacks that are kind of um, on their way out, so to speak. You know, to to different places. But I, I definitely think that. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of quarterback needy teams. And there's just not enough quarterbacks, so that's going to make teams start to get a little desperate. Yeah, I'm I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb, not even that much of a limb, I guess, and say that this is one of those years where, just like always, there'll be two or three first round quarterbacks, and I think at least one of the quarterbacks taken in the first you know, however many picks, how many, one of the few quarterbacks will have a solid, and by solid I mean hangs around the league for a while, you know, career. I think, you, you know, they'll have to find a way to hang around the league. But, yeah, I mean, I agree. There's no Pat Mahomes. There's no Baker Mayfield. There's a whole there's lot no of – There's no Sam Darnold. There's no, no. – there's not even a Teddy Bridgewater, you know. Or uh, right. Derek Carr, you know, like uh, in terms of uh, that level of play at a lower level competition, if you will. So, um, I mean, there's definitely some guys that are like that, but I don't think they're going to player yet, you know, this year in particular. I mean, we'll see. But I, I just feel like this is a class where uh, you're going to have a, a lot of uh, – the need ain't going to be filled, you know. <laughs> um, so, which is always, uh, you know, an uh, issue, I guess, for a lot of teams. Right. But I do believe amongst the teams that are willing to be patient enough to find, you know, that day two, maybe even day three, high-end backup, they're going to have at least an opportunity, you know, at least an opportunity. So that's the question, to at least have a guy uh, that will be on their team for a while. Yeah, so if the top of the class, if the best if best in class is Matt Schaub, if the best in class is Chase Daniel, if the best in class is um, Mark Sanchez, and you kind of know that going in, perhaps, yeah, as we just said, maybe the, the, the move isn't, you know, to 
to go after a, a quarterback in the first 20, 25 picks. This might be a really good year to address other needs that you hopefully have because there's a whole lot of really good players to be had. Let's, let's dig into the other positions and other players. Who looks like, based on the way the world should work, who are the guys that should go in the first 50 or so picks? Who, based on the data and or film work you've done, fits? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think uh, I think Dwayne Haskins, I mean, based on the data and everything early, I think he should definitely be in the top 50. Uh, Ed Oliver, for sure. I mean, Ed Oliver already, to begin with, was a top 50 player, if not top 10 player. And that really hasn't changed much, um, you know, based on the data so far. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of wide receivers, you know, that have that potential. You know, Hakeem Butler is one of those guys. Uh, A.J. Brown, to a certain extent, is one of those guys. Tyler Johnson from Minnesota um, is one of those potential guys. Anthony Johnson, uh, you know, has that potential, you know, to kind of be in that sort of area. Um, I think Butler in particular uh, has about, uh, you know, 40% plus market share at this point, which not even getting into percentile data, because I haven't even got to the percentile stuff, but 40% market share in general for a wide receiver is phenomenal. You know? So, you know, already he's a guy that looks very decent um, in terms of that particular uh, metric. Uh, of course, you have a couple of running backs, David Montgomery, one that, based on the production side of things, looks very strong to begin. There's a lot of tight ends. You know, people talk about Noah Faint. You know, he's one of those guys that kind of fits that mold um, of production that's been fairly decent. Um, at the cornerback position, uh, you know, Greedy Williams, before the season even started, had pretty good data overall. Um, and he still continues to kind of have that uh, look to him. Byron Murphy is another guy that kind of looks as a top 50 uh, player overall. Um, some of the linebackers, Devin Bush at Michigan, you know, is one of those is, is a potential top 50 guy. Uh, Devin White you know, from LSU looks like a top 50 player based on data. Um, the only question marks realistically would be like Nick Bosa. Because I really don't know what to do with Nick Bosa because he, I mean, he started the season really well, obviously. Like, you know, ton of production, ton of sacks, ton of this, and then gets injured. And I just worry about him from the perspective of, you know, the the production has never really been that great. He's never been Joey Bosa-level production um, in his career at Ohio State. And I know people make that excuse. Well, he played at Ohio State, so all this talent around him. Well, Joey Bosa played at Ohio State, too. He had a lot of talent around him, and he still dominated. So, um, you know, I just – this whole argument about saying a player plays at a really talented program – it doesn't really bear out because what happens when they go to the NFL when they're playing around a lot of talented players? Now, if you can't produce at college, how are you going to produce in the NFL, you know, when the talent is that much greater? But, uh, yeah, Nick Bosa is just a guy who concerns me just from that, from injury history. You know, he's a guy that had a major injury in high school and can't really finish a season, or he really needed to finish that season, you know, productive, um, more productive than he was in the past. So, um but, yeah, I, I, I would say the strengths of this class would be, you know, the defensive positions, uh, the wide receiver position, um, 
tight end, I'm a little iffy on. I mean, I'll know a lot more about most of the tight ends production-wise in the class, you know, once after this weekend. But at this point, I'm a little iffy. But, but, uh, but yeah, I, I guess those would be kind of the main ones, you know, defensive linemen and, um, and those kind of players for the most part. Okay. Got it. Got it, got it, got it. Oh, Jeffrey Simmons here and Josh Allen. Like, you know, all the defensive players, pretty, pretty strong data-wise. Got it. There's some guys I want you to check out when you get a moment. I know you're playing catch-up. Um, on the wide receiver side, I'm, I want you to take a look at Jamal Custis when you get a chance, the Syracuse wide receiver. Uh, you mentioned Anthony Johnson already. I'm a huge fan. His, um, and I know you don't get a chance to do a lot of FCS stuff, but I think my favorite tight end of this class might be an FCS tight end named Donald Parham. And for those who like to focus on the, oh, look, he played basketball. He went there originally on a basketball scholarship. So like Julius Thomas. Remember Julius Thomas who went to yeah. Portland State on, okay, basketball scholarship. So about summer story in that, you know, he starts his career as a basketball player. Uh, the football coach knows that he played high school football and looks at him, this kid who's, I mean, he's at Stetson and he's six foot eight and 241 pounds. <laughs> and so the football coach is like, hey, you know, I heard you play football. You know, hey, I mean, you should really play football. Eventually, Donald Perham says, okay, you know, comes out there, takes a while to settle in because he hasn't played football in a while, but he has been dominant this year. Uh, obviously, I'm looking mostly at his tape, but his numbers have been pretty gaudy, too. He's lapping the field, as far as I can tell. Once again, you do, you know, you, you do this data thing for a living. I dabble. But as far as I can tell, he's lapping the field amongst tight ends, uh, FCS, FBS, whatever S you want to throw out there. His numbers, I mean, he's almost literally doubling up a lot of the tight ends. People are telling me are the top tight ends, like Noah Fant and Hawkinson and whoever else. Uh, Donald Parham's numbers, and once again, I know it's SDS, but his numbers are crazy. Um, and then his tape's pretty impressive, too. Uh, he's not an amazing blocker, but he's not the worst blocker in this class, to be perfectly honest. Fant, I think, might be the... It's crazy. There's an Iowa tight end that can't block. I thought that was against the law. Now, they do have one who can block, <laughs> Hawkinson, but, but, but no Fant. I saw a, um, a stream to one of the wide receivers where a 186-pound Nickelback runs right through Noah Fant to make a play, and I'm like, what the heck is that? Now, everybody has a bad day at the office, so I, I'm going to keep looking. I'm not going to give up on him or whatever, but I wasn't super impressed with – he can run, he, has, he can catch, he has good body control, but he just – I know we talked about how last year was the weakest in terms of, you know, physical strength, tight end class ever. Yeah. I, I think the title may be in contention again this year. Uh, if Noah Fant is any indication. Yeah, I mean, that may happen. I don't know. Titan is, is I just kind of wonder about the position. And as, I, as I told you before, is if, the trend, if the trend is going to continue to be uh, weaker tight ends or if it's going to be or if it's going to become an issue where, um, you know, this is just an outlier. Because 
it could be either or, but I, I do agree that, you know, Nofin is not exactly the best blocker and um, lacks strength in terms of that sort of position. But, um, but you know, I don't know, it's just kind of tough to get a read on most tight ends. Um, I don't know. Because you, you have lots of guys that, like David Njoku kind of comes to mind as one of those players that, you know, has had a lot of trouble blocking in the NFL this far. Um, obviously, was super athletic. And maybe that's no fame. Maybe no fame becomes like a Njoku, Njoku type, um, you know, where he's a target, but he doesn't really give you everything that you really want um, from the position. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, the one thing, even Dallas Clark, I mean, obviously, who wasn't a devastating blocker, but he I never saw a 186-pound nickel run right through his chest. You know what I mean? Like, I, I never saw that yeah. from Dallas. You know, he wasn't reminding me of Orson Mobley in his prime as a blocker. He wasn't, a, he wasn't Jason Witten as a blocker, but he never gave an effort where you said, is he hurt or something? Because that's why I literally wondered after I watched that, I literally wondered to myself, is he injured? Like, how does that happen? He, he outweighs this guy by 60-plus pounds. And he may have just been in bad position or not been looking in the right place or who knows, something. But it, it haunts me. I watch him do all the other pretty stuff. I mean, he's essentially just a big wide receiver. He's not that different from Hakeem Butler in so many ways. He's essentially Hakeem Butler, but you line him up at tight end. It's from what I've seen thus far. And like I said, I'm, I'm not done doing my work on Fant. I, I don't dislike him. I just, I, it haunts me. Every time I, I watch him do all the other stuff, I keep, I keep hearkening back to when that 186-pound kid ran right through him. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, who else is good based on the work you've done? Any other guys that you you would feel good about? If you go into that room, I mean, we talked about this once before. You you are a fan of a team that is. I'm not going to use the word tank because that's not a word that we people use in the NFL. But uh, they're loading for the future. Whatever term you like. Uh, who are some of the people that should be on their their shopping list? Since they're going to have a lot of early draft picks. Well, if I, again, if I was John Gruden, like I told you before, if I was John Gruden, I wanted to blow up the Raiders. Yeah. Um, I would draft Tyler Murray. Okay. I would draft Tyler Murray. Be the quarterback in the future. <laughs> I would get a wide receiver, any of the number of the wide receivers. So it doesn't really have to be first round. I mean, it could be day two, get a guy like Tyler Johnson, you know, potentially in day two, you know, you know, potentially. Um, uh, or A.J. Brown, or, you know, any of the number of the wide receivers in the class kind of in day two area. Uh, and then first round, just load up on defensive players, you know, Jeffrey Simmons, Josh Allen, um, you know, uh, Montez Sweat pops a little bit. I mean, I don't quite see him as a first-round talent per se, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. But he's definitely a guy who's kind of showed up a bit. Um. Ed Oliver, you know, would be kind of an interesting addition uh, to kind of the rotation. But um, for cornerback position, they could look that 
place as well. I don't really see any of the cornerbacks in this class as like first rounders per se. Um, but um, I do think there's a lot of good value corners. Like, I think, you know, Byron Murphy and Grady Williams are kind of those solid, you know, potential long-term starter type cornerbacks, you know, in the class. Yeah, I, there are some corners I really like, but they aren't quote-unquote first-round types or whatever. I mean, I think now when you get a chance, check out Dakari Monroe at San Jose State. There's a lot of guys who maybe they end up kicking inside or maybe they, whatever. I mean, they don't go to LSU or Auburn or USC or wherever it is. Pick a, pick a school where people usually find first-round corners. You know, we'll see what happens with Biggie Marshall, Iman Marshall, who has, um, he's had some interesting things happen this year to him. He's done some silly things from, uh, whatever. I mean, he's a talented guy, but I'm not always wild about some of the things I've seen him do. Uh, His decision-making is not, does not excite me. I'm a little afraid of some of the things I've seen him do. He has talent. He's big. Um, I'm not always wild about how he his hips and feet. I'm not sure if he's super super nimble, but he is a big corner, and that seems to sometimes overwhelm some people's uh, thought process. Yeah, uh, big okay. corner doesn't really equal good corner. So there we go. That's when we start making our um, consensus draft services T-shirts. Some of them will say things like, um, some big slow corners are just big slow corners. Uh, we'll have a whole series of cornerback T-shirts. Big corner doesn't, like, it'll be like the, the X sign, uh, big corner X equals, through the X through the equals, good corner. Um, we'll have a whole bunch of, we can do a whole cornerback series of, uh, <laughs> of, of T-shirts, draft T-shirts about quarterbacks. So, you know, the DT class, the defensive tackle class, is, is, is one of those classes about whom I actually feel pretty good. Uh, I think it, this is a really good year to be shopping for, 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 for defensive tackles, at least. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I haven't even got done with a lot of going through the D-line class, but, you know, when, when I think about it as, like, the, the top guys so far are guys like Oliver, um, Jeffrey Simmons, who's the guy that I liked last year, you know, coming into this year, and he's, you know, improved a lot. And even Queen and Williams, and although, I, again, Queen and Williams, I think, has, uh, I don't see him as Gerald McCoy per se. I don't really see that. But at the same time, I think he, I mean, he's a solid defensive lineman in his own right, um, you know, to be a potential starter. So I, just, I think if you just start with a couple of those guys, you know, you have a lot of, you have a good place to start. So it, it can't get much worse from here. You know, like there has to be some more D-tackles D in there that, uh, you know, that, that are good, you know, if you will. Yes. Well, I mean, you know me. I found some D-tackles uh, even, you know, below the, the F, uh, BS level that I think will be successful, at least rotational guys, if not, you know, first-line guys. It's a really good class. It's a really good group. In terms, of, in terms of that. 
So yes, uh, let me say who else. Uh, we talked. Oh, offensive line. Now you have to help me there because I guess obviously it'll help you once the actual data starts to trickle in on testing and whatnot. But I'm not sure how to feel about the offensive line class thus far. I haven't seen too many guys that I would touch in the first in the first round of the draft, and only a couple I would even get super excited about in the second round. Uh, but tell me what what you've noticed thus far about the offensive line class, if anything. I know once again you're playing catch up, so if you haven't gotten to where you're comfortable, we can move on to another position group. Well, not much has really changed there. Um, I mean, Dalton Risner, I think, is a solid tackle prospect. Um, Jonah Williams is kind of all over. I'm in between on him to a certain extent. Um, in that I think he might be a better suited to play guard than he would um, than he would, you know, in a, a different position. Mm. Okay. Um, here, I'm going to throw out a few other guys I really like. Uh, Cortez Broughton, so we're talking, getting back to defensive guys. Um, he's the Cincinnati D tackle that uh, I think is going to First of all, I think if he gets invited to the combine, I'm, I shouldn't assume, but I think he will. I wouldn't be surprised if he tests way better than people think he's going to test. Uh, he and Gerald Willis III are a couple of my particular favorites. Now, the some people call them run stuffers, and they're good against the run, but I think they're more than just run stuffers. I'm going to throw a few other guys at you. Apologize for just vomiting forth names. Uh, Michael Dogbay. D-O-G-B-E uh, at Temple, because Temple's always got dudes I like, uh, some of whom people know about, some of whom, like how do people watch Temple and see some guys and miss others? I never figured how that works. Um, also, I would toss in Nate Harvey at East Carolina, who's undersized, uh, but so productive. Uh, Chase Hansen at Utah, Corbin Kafusi, one of the, I don't know, 13 Kafuthis that seem to be wandering around uh, BYU. Wyatt Ray at Boston College. Um, and here's a name that people have started to now pick up on. So now Draft Twitter is now getting there on Oshani uh, Zimenez. And that's O-S-H-A-N-E-X-I-M-I-N-E-S at Old Dominion University. I'm anticipating, in fact, I think he may have been officially invited to the Senior Bowl. I'm not 100% sure, but I, think, but I think he will end up at the Senior Bowl. And, you know, we'll all hear about how he's being, quote, unquote, discovered or a riser or whatever term you like at the Senior Bowl. And when you get around to doing your data work on those guys, uh, well, let me know what you find, I guess. And I'll throw out uh, one other Sunbelt guy, uh, there's always at least one Sunbelt guy that I'm huge on each year. Uh, they have, well, there's a few guys, actually. They have, uh, I like Courtney Sutton, who is uh, the wide receiver that had that field day against Penn State at the beginning of the year. I like, as um, another Sunbelt guy I like is, is probably going to end up playing, you know, nickel corner, but I'm a huge fan of Clifton Duck and have been for a while at Appalachian <laughs> State. And as you probably also already know. And uh, let's see. Arkansas State has a 
guy named Ro Ronheen Bigham. Um, I think is how that's pronounced. It's R O N H E N. I've never run across that name before, but I believe, I believe it's Ronheen Bigham. And he's he's really good. Um, I don't know what else to say. He's really, 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 really good. Um, he's he, I, I've seen him a couple of times on tape, and he just jumps off the tape. I, the first time I spotted him, I was watching a guy that I liked at Arkansas State last year, and I sort of bookmarked him. And then this year, you know, and I'm not a big person, you know, I'm not a big PFF person, but PFF gave him super high grades also. But I I I I loved him even before that. Uh, I would definitely urge you to take a take a look at at him uh, if you get a chance because Arkansas State obviously is I mean you know it's not completely off the beaten path they played as they always do at least one SEC school he showed up you know playing against a quote unquote higher level of competition he showed up he showed up he shows up he shows up every time I've watched uh, he wears number eight and he's cool he's a fun guy to watch. One of my dudes, uh, and I'm ho- I'd love to speak of Senior Bowl. I'd love to see him get an invitation to the Senior Bowl, although most likely he'll end up at East West Shrine, which is sort of sad for him, but cool for me because, you know, I'll probably be there and get to watch him in person. But he, he really deserves to be at the Senior Bowl. Yeah, I mean, Arkansas State is a good program this year. I mean, you know, they're, they're yeah. not – Super high end, of course, in the, in the conference, but they're you know they're doing things. Yeah, so I am very much looking forward to seeing where. I mean, I, as you know, the first round of invitations. We'll talk a little bit of senior role. Um, we've both been, but you've been more recently than I've been. I believe you've been more recently. I I, I used to go back when it was. Back when fewer people went, I don't know how it was um, Now, you know, it's like a, you know, I mean, it's huge. Um, the Senior Bowl wasn't always quite this big back in the day, back in the late, late 90s and early 2000s. You would see the same dudes, but it was, you didn't see everybody, you know. Like, there's teenagers, you know what I mean? And I'm not, I'm not, this is not meant to be an old guy complaint kind of thing, but I'm just saying you didn't see a bunch of 14, 15, 16-year-olds there who were credentialed. I'll put it that way. You would see teenagers there because they lived in the area and they liked football. But you wouldn't see guys who were in their teens or college kids with credentials, you know, there to cover it. And that's what's changed. You know, in the old days, it was, you know, grown-ups. Uh, I mean, once again, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not, my intention is not to complain. Uh, I think it's cool. I wish it, when I was 14 I could have gotten credentialed to go to go to the Senior Bowl. But that wasn't that wasn't that big of those days. You couldn't get credentialed as a 14-year-old to go to the Senior Bowl. You know, you had to be a working member of the press. And then when the website revolution hit, you know, in the 90s, at first they were very um, free with credentials. And then they tightened up, and I guess they loosened back up. I don't know. I haven't, I, I haven't tried a game recently. Maybe I'll try again this year to go. But, well... When I went in 2014, I got credentials pretty easily. Then in 2018, they tightened up. I don't know. It's like an ebb and flow thing. Obviously, they have a new, you know, Phil Savage is not running the program anymore. So, you know, it'll probably be a different, um, 
mentality. So, but you know, we'll see. Yes. I just feel like the Senior yes. Bowl is trying to get really exclusive, you know. Like, yeah, we're the Senior Bowl. We're not the Shrine Game. No, that type of thing. Yeah, well, once again, I mean, we'll both be applying for credentials. So if yep. if we don't both end up seeing each other in Mobile, we'll see each other in uh, at the East West Shrine, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but either way, I look forward to, you know, to us seeing each other again, obviously. Yeah, if you were in charge of the Senior Bowl, if you were in charge of the Senior Bowl, Jim, how would it work? Because clearly there's a lot of sort of reputation and politics and grinding the tape or whatever goes into, well, into the process. You know, this, how would it work if this, you were this, this would be the process, and it would be pretty easy. Um, it would be getting all the data on all the seniors this year uh, and also what they did over the course of the year uh, and also getting a lot of coach recommendations, you know, uh, you know, in terms of networking, scout recommendations, stuff like that. And if the data likes the player and there's a scout or a coach that likes that player as well and they get in, if there's a scout or a coach that likes the player and the data says no, <laughs> then they're not going to get invited because I, the, my biggest gripe with the Senior Bowl in general is that they invite players that most of the time are never starters. They were never starters at their program. Um, they're basically the backups or the reserve at a Big Ten school or or a SEC school or whatever. When you have players from well, some kid at Louisiana Tech who's killed it for three years. I just don't um, – that's, that's the mentality I don't like. So, again, if, if the data really likes the player and there's a coach or a scout or, or you know, an agent or whatever that goes, hey, I need you to put this player in, you know, and they like them for whatever reason, then they get in. If, if the data doesn't like a player and it's a significant difference, you know, I would sit that coach or scout down and say, you know, there's been zero long-term starting defensive tackles who perform this way based on paper. Why is your guy any different? Why is, why is he going to be better? You know? And if they just give a whole bunch of spill about, well, they're a hard worker and uh, work their way up, then it's not going to work. I mean, because the bottom line is I'm not – I'm trying to get guys to compete, you know, the best players to compete at the senior bowl. And you're not always going to get the best players. You're not going to get the best seniors to be at the senior bowl. But I feel like that's the best team I can possibly do is if, if the data really likes the player and there's a scout or a coach that recommends them, um, then they get in. If, if that isn't the case, then they don't get in. And I think that's totally fair. Well, and this is the thing I was sort of sneaking around about something I want to co-write with you. At some point, I want to co-write an article about if we were in charge of these all-star games, how different they might look. And it, we, we've talked about this in the past. There's guys at the Shrine game who, as we said, belong at the Senior Bowl. There's guys at the Senior Bowl who belong at the Shrine game or NFLPA game or the Grand Showcase in some cases, like that kid from Tiffin, the quarterback from Tiffin, who I just said, and I, I'm not trying to down the kid. I mean, he... 
but he was a guy that just had no business at the Senior Bowl. I don't know how to put it. Or even the Shrine game. He, he should have been a guy that should have been on the if someone turns us down list of quarterbacks at the NFLPA or, you know, like I said, Gridiron Showcase made more sense. And I know connections yeah. and who your quarterback coach but is. But that's and, what it is. I mean, it's a decision that is based purely on uh, politics. And don't get me wrong, politics is always going to be involved in these types of programs, but I think you would get a lot more respect around the league if you put your foot down and said, no, I'm not letting this guy come here because, you know, he he did, doesn't deserve it. You know, because there's, there's guys, even at the Shrine game, that fit the description I'm talking about. You know, this is at every bowl you know, for the most part. You'll have guys that are invited that really have no business being invited. Right. So, you know. if I understand you correctly, there'd be almost like a minimum threshold expectation that a guy would have to hit in order to be in consideration. Is that essentially what you're saying? Or or, or what would be they the... Have to hit the minimum, they have to hit the minimum threshold to be a starter in the NFL. And... That may seem like a high standard, but it really isn't. I mean, there's there's going to be players, there's going to be guys that you're going to have to cut from that list, you know, to to make the final list. Like, it's not going to be so small that you're going to have to add players who don't fit that description. Um, but I just feel like that's the best way to make sure that you're going to players that have a very really good likelihood of becoming NFL stars. And it'll help NFL teams out because instead of, Seeing a player at the senior ball or shining, and we go, you know what, you must know get at the shining, and then they end up drafting them, and then they end up not becoming anything. It also helps protect teams. So I'm helping teams out to not fall for, you know, a one week, uh, you know, wonder. Yeah, because that really, that's really what they are. They're a one week wonder. Because they didn't do anything during the season. They had one great week. And then they got drafted on it. And we've seen this many times, though. They get drafted fifth, sixth round. You know, and they go, well, you know, that's expected for fifth, sixth round. Well, yeah, if you keep drafting these guys in the fifth and sixth round, you're going to have a lower hit rate in the fifth and sixth round, the seventh round. You know? You draft players to just be backups and reserves, that's all they're going to become. So it's just. You know, but yeah, that that's my biggest, that's my gripe every year about the the all star games. Is they just invite certain players that there's there's zero chance of becoming a starter at the next level. So why even invite when you have all these other players from all these different programs that are much better players, you know, much better chance of, of becoming a successful player in the NFL. Um, and you know, they don't get invited for whatever reason. Well, as you know, that's been a, a, a pet peeve of mine for quite some time is players who, you know, maybe they don't have a particular amount of name recognition or they didn't go to school, but their their tape and production are both outstanding. And for whatever reason, they're, you know, they're not at the Senior Bowl or in some cases not even at the Shrine Game, but usually, you know, more often than not, a lot of times those super productive guys who just don't have all the name recognition often end up the Shrine Game. And so I get the fun of watching Philip Lindsay up close and in person, uh, you yep. know, where, well, some other dudes are at the Senior Bowl who aren't nearly 
as productive or weren't nearly as productive as Philip Lindsay was in college. Yeah. I don't know. But, that, I mean, that's that's always my biggest gripe. That's all. So, um, and a lot of times there's no justification for it. I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't see how other than aging intervention, you know, that's like that's the only um, – Reason and yeah, agents are always going to be part of the process, you know. But I just don't think you should have that much of an influence on um, on, on all star games, you know. I just don't think you should have that big of an influence, you know. It's kind of like saying, you know, there should be less lobbyists in Congress, you know what I'm saying? Because it doesn't really benefit, it doesn't benefit the teams, it just benefits the players. And believe me, I'm all for players getting benefits, but. You know, I, I just feel like if you go to players that have a better chance of actually translating at the next level. Right. So, Dan is about as unbiased as you can possibly be, you know, about the process in general. Right. So, when you start digging into, and have you done this? Maybe you've, maybe you've already done this. Maybe, or maybe I'm throwing yet another thing on your plate that's already overflowing. But have you looked back at the senior bowl classes over a certain amount of time and to see how the guys who, you know, did certain things as opposed to the guys that didn't do certain things data-wise ended up, you know, how their careers ended up panning out? You know, um, using the because I have all the data. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I can just give anecdotal examples. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean, I do have you've all the You've never done a study that focused on senior bowl guys as of yet. Right. I haven't really done a study on senior bowl guys um, in terms of, you know, the guys that kind of worked out or not. Um, but I would say that they should line up fairly well with what the rest of the data does. Uh, you know, I mean, other than the fact that the guys at the Senior Bowl probably got drafted, you know. Um, well, I mean, the Senior Bowl always lets you know. The Senior Bowl itself tells you what percentage of their guys get drafted. And, of course, I think all the, all they do, all of them do it nowadays, but they tell you, hey, what percentage of our guys got drafted or at least got invited to camps. And in case of, like, the NFLPA, they, they focus on how many guys ended up at least making a 50-year-man roster because, obviously, a fairly small number of their guys end up being drafted, but they always, when you get the press information, if you ever decide to go to the NFL, yeah, they tell you, you know, X percentage of our guys, you know, have at least made a 53-man roster, things like that. Yeah, but Not, that's only because of exposure. Yes. Yes, right. I mean, everybody knows the hierarchy by now. You know, the Senior Bowl is where you get the most exposure. The GMs yeah. go to that event. The coach, the, I mean, see, Jerry everybody, Jones, everybody goes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know he like he Andy Reid. He have to take some pictures of Bill Belichick. Right. That's yeah. The That's why he doesn't look like Belichick. Yeah. Now he doesn't look like Bill Belichick. He looks like a. He looks kind of like a. Like a grunge '90s band member, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's like, like a like kind of a washed up grunge '90s, you know, band member. But you know, he's hey, look, the, he ain't trying to get changed. He was the the road manager for um 
for Soundgarden is here. Exactly. Exactly. That's how he goes. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the senior bowl, is, you're going to get more exposure. So if you do well, you're going to get drafted higher um, or at a more rate. Trying game is, is obviously the second area. And then the NFLPA game is like the reserve. <laughs> oh, you know, like it's, uh, you know, it just is what it is at this point, unfortunately. Like whenever you hear a guy who goes to the NFLPA, you just start thinking to yourself, uh-oh. <laughs> are they going to get enough exposure to um, to really do anything, you know? So, um, but yeah, I mean, the Trident and the Senior Bowl definitely are those two big ones. And the NFLPA is just that kind of other one where you just you hope they don't get invited to the NFLPA because it usually is not a great sign. Yeah, which is it's a shame because it's a well-run uh, – I've enjoyed my. I've been there. I've been two times, and I've enjoyed the experience each time. Uh, you have tremendous access to the players. That's where the NFLPA game wins. In terms of access to the players, it's even better than East West Shrine. They give you a lot of access to the players. Uh, the agents are also willing to talk to you pretty honestly about things. From my experience there, uh, I think the, the level of openness and honesty of the agents is in a direct and inverse relationship to the prominence of the bowl. At the senior bowl, it's almost all the talking points. And then you get to yeah. the shrine, and it's a little more honesty. Hey, I know my guy needs to work on this, or, you know, I really could see this happening, or I've heard blah, blah, blah about my guy, or if he has a really good pro day, this could happen. And then when you get to NFLPA, they're telling, they're, you know, you get to know a couple of guys, and after a while they're telling you the God's honest truth about everything, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's just, you know, sort of the, my kid's great at this, but could work on that. But even, you know, the teams, they're very honest about the teams. They don't say, you know, someone's so loved them. They're saying, well, I managed to get this, this particular scout to take a look, and, you know, he's not crazy about my kid, but you know, or I have a relationship with this team already. I'm thinking maybe I can get them a tryout. Like, they're really, they're very, very honest when you get down to the NFLPA game about their, their actual, they seem to be more realistic, I guess is the way I'm looking, what I'm looking to say. Yep. And, and like I said, I didn't hope that guy gets a tree out. No, I hope he just gets a tryout. I mean, but yeah, but that's because, again, it's less exposure and, you know, the closer you get, like, the biggest difference that I felt from the Shrine game, because I went, you know, immediately from the Shrine game to the Senior Bowl, you know, in terms of visiting both those games, was you know, the Shrine game, much more relaxed, you know, type of environment. You know, the Senior Bowl, it's like everybody's careful about what they say, you know, what they do. Uh, yep. You know, like, the players are even kind of like, uh-oh, you know, I better not mess up, better not mess up, you know, like that That really is uh, – you know, like you can just tell which players are letting the game kind of get get to them, you know, in terms of practices. Right. Right. And, and of course, that's one of the things that guys supposedly really like to figure out about a kid is if, if something's too big for him and if, if it starts to, unra- he starts to unravel or whatever, and they like to know that. Supposedly that's something they really get into knowing is seeing which guys, quote-unquote, rise to the occasion, which guys, 
Yeah, it just sort of swallows them up. You know, they, they, they end up being taken over and struggling with, uh, and especially with the quote-unquote, they take a, and hopefully that will expand, you know, but they, they take a shot at a handful of quote-unquote smaller school guys each year. And here's what I will say. The number of them has slowly begun to creep upward. In my mind, it's still way lower than it should be since it doesn't say the FBS senior bowl with a sprinkling of non-FBS guys. It just says the senior bowl. <laughs> That's my only complaint right. is that, you know, if you, if you truly are the senior bowl, then let's just get the most deserving seniors regardless of where they play. Right. Because, because as we've seen demonstrated so thoroughly so many times, just because, you know, this particular school, big school A, just because you went to Arkansas instead of Arkansas City doesn't mean you're a better player. I guess is what I'm saying. But it's not. But it's not even that, though, Bill. Because um, my biggest complaint with FCS players is not the FCS players that are actually good. It's the FCS, FCS players that played at Tennessee, got kicked off the program, went to a lower level school, didn't do anything, and then get invited to one of these All Star events. Yeah, like that, that's a yeah, that is a pet peeve of mine as well. And sometimes, literally, they'll be a teammate on the same, you know, position grouping who's killing this kid. You know what I mean? He's, like, clearly better. It's like, well, how did this happen? How is this guy, the guy that you chose to focus on, when you look, literally three feet to your left, there's a guy out playing him. How does that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's been a mind-boggler for me for a while is the whole Wait, hold on. How could you have missed this guy? Because you're looking at this guy who's right next to him. Oh, here we go. Speaking of, and of course, this, this is what I agree will be at the senior bowl, but there's always at least some big school guy that people aren't falling out of love with because he's too whatever, he's dumpy, or his arms are short, or his whatever it is. So I would urge you all to take a look at Dan Gaziano. No R. Some people turn into Graziano, but Gaziano at Northwestern. Now, he's probably going to have short arms. I, I'm just saying that. Maybe he won't, but I just have a feeling that they're going to find something in it that he's a really productive player, and I can't find a single game where he doesn't show up. Like, once again, those guys are super consistent. He's not going to test super well, probably, but I think he's going to hang around for a while in the NFL. And I'd love to see him in the Senior Bowl, actually, but we'll, you know, obviously we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. We'll see. Okay, so one last position group I wanted to hit upon. It is near and dear to my heart, and it has become almost an endangered species. I feel like we're only a little, a few steps away from seeing uh, or, um, or uh, Sarah McLaughlin or somebody doing fundraisers and consciousness raising for the safety position. But I would like to touch on the safety class. 
Now, once again, for those who aren't familiar with how you do your work, what does a, a successful NFL safety look like based on the data work that you do? What should you look for? Well, you need to look at solo tackle market share data, uh, interception market share data, and pass deflection market share data. And the only real difference between free safety and strong safety is you want the free safeties to be better in terms of the ball hawking aspects of the position, you know, the getting interceptions, breaking up passes. And you want the strong safety to be better at the tackling aspect and the interception and pass deflection aspect to a certain extent. You still need to be very good at tackling, getting interceptions, breaking up passes, you know, being disrupted at the pass, you know, uh, at the catch point. But you do want the, 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 the strong safety to be very excellent in terms of tackling, and you want the free safety to be above and beyond elite when it comes to the ball hawking side of the position. So I, I think that kind of, that's the way I can sum it up. You know, like you want them to be able to tackle, get picks, and, and break up passes, you know. Um, Got it. Yeah. Got it. So are there, are there any safeties to be had in this track class, Jim? And well, if so, who might they be? I haven't, you know, I haven't done my initial work on this class, but the only player that popped data-wise last year that is in this class uh, is, uh, you know, the Boston College um, free safety. Um, and I'm kind of, his name kind of escapes me right now, but um, but he's basically the free safety at Boston College. He's probably been the best in terms of uh, tackling, you know, uh, interceptions and pass deflection data thus far. Um, there probably are some safeties that I just I don't know because I haven't watched enough film and I haven't really gotten to the data side of things this year. But all I can really think of as far as safeties that I know right now and safeties that I've even seen a little bit of film of um, is the you know the Boston College free safety. Okay. Well, I'll be interested to know when you have done more work on the safety class. If you know, if there's first of all hope, you know, to be had at the at the position. Uh, it is like I said. You and I have talked about how you know some people have talked about how it's treated, sort of like this red-haired stepchild, where you just hey, if that if that big corner that you fell in love with somehow doesn't work out, you just you know hey, well let's just move. You know, this guy can't move you can't do that. I mean, the the safety position in today's NFL is, is more important than middle linebacker. You know, like, I don't understand why you even decide to draft a middle linebacker. Unless that middle linebacker is super athletic, you know, like a Leighton Vander Esch or, you know, somebody like that. Unless they're like that, okay, I kind of understand what you're trying to do. But if you're trying to get a great defense in today's NFL, you have to have a great safety. And they have to have a great football IQ. They have to they don't have to be super athletic, but they do have to be athletic enough um, to function, you know, in the NFL because I think the biggest problem with a lot of safeties today is they just don't have enough functional athleticism. You know, they might have a really high football IQ, but when you can only run four seven one and you're trying to catch up to a four three wide receiver you're going to get exposed, you know, in those situations. So it's it's just a tough position, you know. You have to be a elite-level athlete 
and you have to have a high football IQ, and those things don't grow on trees, you know, unfortunately, when it comes to the safety position. Right. So we have that established. And like I said, I'll be interested to know when you, when you have more data work. As the, the tight end position, because we'll bring this up all the time, becomes more and more of a, a quote-unquote chess piece, joker, uh, game changer, whatever term you want to use, playmaker, all those great football appreciates, uh, you know, bigger and faster, once again, less, less, less blocking maybe than in the past, but big, fast guys, you move around and try to create matches, blah, blah, blah. Too big for the safety, too fast for the linebacker. So, if you are interested in successfully finding and using, whether it be linebackers or safeties, to you know to defend the the modern tight end. Who should that guy be? What should that guy be? Who should be defending the tight end nowadays? And, and what, would the, what would you need? I really, I really don't know. <laughs> like, it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those positions where, you know, Jimmy Graham and Rob Gronkowski, you know, those were guys that were just killing it in the league, you know, like at one point. They were just destroying everything that was in their way, and that was because, they were mismatched type guys. There is no mismatch. I mean, how many linebackers do you know that are six foot six, uh, two hundred and forty to fifty pounds, and can run, you know, four or five? Not that many. I can't think of any right now. Uh, you know, you look at the safety position. How many safeties can you think of that have those types of athletic measurables? Not a lot. So, I mean, in general. I would think the only types of guys that can really match up against those types of guys is, is a safety that has size, length, and speed, and a high football IQ. So it's, I mean, it's just the way the way modern NFL offenses are. That's just what you can get, and the problem is, is you're not always going to have that guy in every draft class. I think that's that's the biggest problem that defenses run into is there's really not a lot you can do. Okay, you know like that and I don't know I don't want to say why try but I see it as a, as a thing where you know why would I turn this this 6'5 250 pound athlete into a linebacker when I could use him as a tight end you know and and he would succeed more frequently so it's just I don't know that, that's all I can really say. You need somebody who has size, athleticism, and length, and you're just not always going to find that guy, you know. So, and it, you can't really hit. You can't really hit anymore, too. So that whole, you know, establishing your presence as a defense in the middle, like, because you know, that was the thing, you know, you always had to be careful going in the middle because you might get rocked. Well, nowadays, that's possibly a penalty. You might miss a couple games, you know, like it's it's a big, you know, thing now. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's a tough question to answer, I guess. So, we have 
reach a situation where essentially the tight end position has become indefensible. You can't really, you're just, you're, you're powerless against it. Is that essentially what you're saying? Well, uh, I mean, it depends on the tight end, too, because just because you have size, I mean, look at a guy like Michael Roberts right on the line. Um, a guy that has lots of size, lots of length, not athletic. No, he ran like a four nine one or something, right? Exactly. And you go to like the Lions game yesterday, and Eddie Jackson. And don't get me wrong, you know, Eddie Jackson is you know a great safety, but any safety who does any amount of film work can look at Michael Roberts running routes and go, "I know exactly what he's." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> like size and length isn't everything, but in terms of tight ends that can actually run, have that length. That's the problem. So I wouldn't say tight ends are, like, have all the advantage in the world. I mean, you still have to be athletic, uh, you know, on top of all the other things. But I do think there are some issues. Yeah, I I remember draft Twitter sort of developing a crush, some of the draft Twitter developing a crush on, on Michael Roberts and, my guy Jeff Higdon was a fan and things like that, and he was really excited when he ended up with the Lions because uh, that was a team he was covering. But his limitations were clear even on in college on tape. Uh, he's not what you'd call sudden or, I mean, even if you're a president doesn't pay any attention to the testing numbers, even just watching him play, you could tell he wasn't going to shake anybody. You know, he was uh, more of a post-you-up kind of guy. And he still is. I mean, he still yeah. can win. I mean, he can still win, but he's only going to win in a particular way. I mean, he's the type of guy that if he had the best season of his life, it would be, you know, 40 catches for 400 yards and eight touchdowns, and most of them coming from the red zone, you know. Like, he, he's only really a mismatch. He, you have to create mismatches for him, you know. You have to put him up against, like, a five – nine cornerback or whatever, you know. And even then, the cornerback might be able to maneuver his way to get in position to break up the pass. So, but, I don't know. It's just really tough. We'll, we'll close out with these last two things. Do you make a distinction between quote unquote real tight ends, you know, uh, the quote unquote inline wide, though even the inline wide guys don't play inline wide that much nowadays, but between big tight ends and little tight ends, uh, between, you know, the H back E, as you sort of call them, types, move tight ends, and, you know, Rob Gronkowski and, you know, those guys, Travis Kelsey. Right. Uh, I do. And, I do. And make there is a distinction between the two. The cutoff, based on the data, is about six foot four. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, anybody who's six foot four or higher is more of an inline type tight end. Anybody that's six foot three or lower, six foot three, six foot two, six foot one, is more of a H backy tight end. And you know, there's a my yard of reasons for that. One, the six foot two, six foot one tight ends usually have less length. If you put a six foot one tight end up against Julius Peppers, you'll see what the issue is. Even with how old Julius Peppers is, there's a fundamental issue. 
with putting him <laughs> up against a six foot one tight end, you know, in general. Um, the success <laughs> outcomes. The success outcomes are always going to be higher with the inline types, and I think that's just because of the innate mismatchedness of being that big and that tall. Um, now, is there going to be situations where a H-back tight end, I'm going to have an H-backy tight end higher than an inline type? Yeah, all the time I usually do because um, I feel like the inline guys like Michael Roberts, like I think a team would be much better served with like an H-back type tight end than a Michael Roberts if you want like a more impactful, um, you know, type, you know, tight end, you know, for the most part. But if uh, – but but there's always going to be higher upside with the inline type. Um, but I do think I do I do distinguish between the two. And as you know, I call them pocket size tight ends. You know, for H back types. Um, you know, uh, I do think they're underutilized. And I think a lot of that just has to do with offensive coordinators want. They feel like they get more versatility out of a slot receiver than they do a H back tight end for whatever reason. Um, you know, or they feel like an inline tight end is a bigger mismatch than the H back tight end. But at the same time, I do think it is the H back tight end. I do think is one of the more underutilized um, positions in the NFL offenses. Because um, you can just look at what a team like uh, the Patriots had. You know, when they had Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski, they had the best of both worlds. You know, they had the H back tight end in terms of that impact on top of having the inline type tight end. You know, and I think if a team tries to do that again, I think they'll see really great results. You know, if you if a team tries to go that route on offense, right? Okay, so looking at the sort of a semi-similar thing on defense, uh, do you differentiate between "quote unquote" outside cornerbacks or you know full-size cornerbacks, whatever you call them, and slot corners or nickel corners? Um, I mean, that's a tough question, too, because there really isn't much of a difference production-wise on paper um, between slot guys and and, out, and, um, and outside guys. You could make the size argument per se, but at the same time, I think the size argument is overblown. Because um, it's, it's funny to me, Bill, because, you know, we talk a lot about corners having to be six foot two and have length. And yet some of the cornerbacks that have been coming out recently that have done really well, you know, it's recency bias. We look at Denzel Ward. Denzel Ward is not six foot two. He doesn't have 33-inch arm length. Uh, you look at the other Ohio State cornerback who was drafted a year prior, you know, in Lattimore. He's not six foot two. He doesn't have 34-inch arm length. So if you play at a big school, it's okay for you to be undersized, but if you play at a small school, it's not okay. And I just don't, I don't agree with that uh, mentality. So, um, I mean, the main, the main thing that both those guys shared was elite level athleticism. So um, I think for slot cornerbacks, size definitely, you know, they do tend to be on the smaller side, but uh, at the same time, I, I think, for slot corners, I think the biggest thing you need is to have great change of direction ability, you know, to be really great in terms of the three cone, um, the short shuttle. And realistically, the slot cornerback should have very similar athleticism to like a safety, you know, because in many ways those nickels are kind of like box safeties, you know, to a certain extent. So, um, 
but yeah, I, I think that I do differentiate a little bit when it comes to cornerback, but at the same time, most of my data is set up to try to find the do-it-all corner versus the, you know, backup or um, complementary cornerback, you know, which is what a lot of slot corners are. Okay. So, if I'm understanding correctly, size may or may not be a differentiator, but production is? I mean, they produce more like safeties. Is that what you're saying about slot corners? Yeah. I mean, slot corners, I mean, if a guy plays slot corner in, in college, um, a lot of times they, they will be producing like a safety because usually they'll have a higher amount of tackles because they have more opportunities to get tackled. Um, versus the outside guys. Because that's the biggest thing I've always noticed with cornerback production is that um, ball hawk data is very important at the position, you know, pass deflection data, regardless of, uh, you know, the other sort of stuff. So, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, a slot guy, typically you do want them to have higher solo tackle data because, you know, they have more opportunities uh, to do that. And if they don't have high solo tackle data and they're playing at the slot corner, then that should be kind of a red flag. Right. So a slot corner that has relatively high pass deflection and interception numbers and his tackle numbers are shaky uh, would be a guy that you think maybe you shouldn't be playing slot corner. Maybe you should be playing outside. Is that what that would say to you? Yeah. I mean, because I think I think I'm not enough. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think enough attention is made to the fact that outside corners have it a little bit easier than safeties and inside players. You know, outside corners have you know the boundary. You know, that's their biggest ally. That's like another safety, if you will. Um, you know in terms of uh, that position. Um, safeties and inside guys, they don't have that. You know, if they miss that tackle, it's a touchdown. So, you know, I, I do think that tackling ability uh, needs to be of much greater importance at that position, um, you know, versus the outside guys. Because if the outside guy has a willingness to tackle, but let's say, say he's a bad tackler, but he has a willingness to tackle, that's kind of okay. I, you know, I don't think it's, it's super acceptable, but it's a little bit more acceptable than, say, a Justin Gilbert, you know, had little less willingness to, to tackle. Um, but I do think slot corners definitely need to be great tacklers um, in general uh, because you're playing that inside position. Okay. Got it. Okay. So is there a another position group that you think is similarly maybe misunderstood in terms of what data tells you over what most people think about the position? Um, yeah, I mean, maybe nose tackle because the biggest thing about the nose tackle position is a lot of people say it's a position that doesn't produce sacks, which is true. But every single great nose tackle uh, had very high solo tackle data uh, versus, you know, uh, their the other sort of data, sort of the sack and, and tackles for loss and stuff like that. So it is true that nose tackles don't necessarily have to be 10 sacks, 12 sack guys in college, but they better 
had that tackle. Again, I think a lot of that has to do with if you're a great nose tackle, you're able to get sideline to sideline and make plays sideline to sideline um, because of your football instincts. You know, basically you need to be where the ball is. And if you don't have high solo tackle data and you don't have high – it doesn't really matter about second TFL. If you just don't have high solo tackle data at the nose tackle position, you're just not going to be great. You know, because guys like Max Harrison and – um, you know, even the plethora of great nose tackles we've had, Vince Wolford, et cetera, they were all high solo tackle guys. Didn't have the great sack numbers or TFL numbers, but I do think there's a misconception that nose tackles don't have to be productive. They do have to be productive. They're just productive in a different way than other positions. Okay. Got it. So before we, we finish out, is there anything else you would tell people about myths and misconceptions about players and about what people should look for that you would like to share? Anything else that stands out? Uh, I think that about – I think that's about it, as, as Boba would say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I do appreciate, especially with this being the holidays and you having a bunch of things happening, I appreciate you making some time. For those who are interested, where can they find more of your work and where can they follow you, Mr. James Coburn? Uh, sure. You can find my work at... Uh at draftcoburn.wordpress.com. Um, I'm going to be doing a big data collection after this weekend, getting into all the solo tackle and um, all the market share data pretty much for all the players uh, in this year for pre-bowl, you know, and also quarterback data. So all that stuff will be on draftcoburn.wordpress.com. You can also check me out on Twitter at Geometrics, and you can also check out the Common Man Football Show on YouTube uh, where I'm going to be having some NFL videos and college videos coming out. Um, a little bit at a time, uh, you know, as the data kind of comes in, because it's a little, it's a little early to start projecting players with uh, with data, because we haven't got to the total end of the season. But um, I definitely will start getting a couple videos out there, kind of covering uh, the basics in terms of guys that really stuck out so far, um, and see what the data says at the end of the season based on all the information. Excellent. Well, as always, it is an honor, a privilege, and a pleasure. I, I tremendously enjoy learning from you and learning with you and, you know, figuring out some of the things that get tangled up in the process. I guess that's what I, I want to think of us as doing, trying to disentangle some of the things that do become tangled when people get confused about how things work in the, in the process you know, and separating myths from reality, fact from fiction, uh, fluff from uh, substance, whatever, whatever term you want to say. So once again, as I said, I, I thank you very much for your time, sir, your talent, and your attention. It's been great getting a chance to know you more and more as things go forward. And uh, we'll do this again reasonably soon. All right, sounds good. Over. Okay, take care. And once again, I, I hope you had a wonderful, wonderful holiday. Yeah, you too as well. Thank you, sir.